for the last number of weeks, I've been talking about the Eightfold Path. Right. And so tonight I'd like to talk about right speech. And um, one of my friends who, who did a kind of cliff notes of the Majjhima Nikaya. The Majjhima Nikaya is a book, it's about this thick. It's got uh, a number of hundred stories, teaching stories of the Buddha. It's a wonderful book. It's the, it, the Majjhima Nikaya is the middle length sayings of the Buddha. So they're little teachings, three, four, five, six pages long. And some hundreds of them, I can't remember. Anybody know how many, how many teachings are in the Majjhima? 190, 200, 300, something like that. And, and they're, they're wonderful teachings. And my friend Sharda Rogel, who did this little kind of cliff notes of the Majjhima, she said what was most interesting to her is she went through the whole book. She said the, the teaching that was given most was about right speech. That that was the area of practice that was spoken about the most over and over again by the Buddha was about speech. And I think that's important just to hear, to hear uh, how, how valued speech was in the Buddha's teaching. <clears throat> and, you know, we, we take speech for granted often, right? I mean, even now that I'm speaking, right, you're assuming you're understanding me. I'm assuming you're understanding me, I hope. You know, but it, it, you know, there's so much in a word or in a phrase or an inflection or in the presence of the person who's speaking or in the presence of the person who's listening. You know, what, how, and part of right speech is right listening. And again, right, I, I also talked in the first um, talk about the overview of the path, what it means when we say right. Right is often translated as wise wise view, wise intention, wise speech, or consummate view, consummate, complete, uh, perfect, sometimes. Um, I like the word right because in the dictionary it says right meaning to bring into accord with the truth. And so view that be starts to bring us into accord with the truth, or intention that brings us into alignment with the truth, or speech that brings us into accord with the truth. And of course, again, the word dharma can quite often, generally, is translated as truth. Sometimes law, sometimes the way things are, but truth is a very common translation. So our view, our intention, our action, our speech, our mindfulness, all the rights, means to bring us into alignment with the Dharma, with the way things are. And so it's true for both speech and both listening. You know, if we're listening and we're not actually present or we're hearing through the filter of our past or somebody else we heard, or if I remind you of your, you know, somebody you didn't like, you'll hear my words in a certain way. Or if, you know, I'm disconnected from what I'm saying, the words will also have a different impact than if I feel connected or if I, the, the words feel true to me or not. Or if I'm just mouthing the words because it's what the Buddha said, it'll get a whole different transmission. 
And so the word, is, the word is not just the word. The word is the aliveness, the presence, the authenticity, the hearness that's here when we speak and when we listen. One of the, and it's true, you know, it's maybe easier to see sometimes in the written word. Like one of the, I find one of the great Dharma practices is to take a good Dharma book and read it once a year. And probably my favorite Dharma book, or really up there in the top 10, is Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind from Suzuki Roshi. And I've read that book easily 10 times, if not more. And what's interesting is every time I read it, I hear it differently. It's like, oh, I can't believe I read that and I didn't get this. I never got that before, what he was saying or the implication of what he was saying. Because, of course, we're a different person in each moment, in each time we look or hear or relate. And so, you know, I like to think about what's the most important thing that I want to convey when I'm giving a talk. And I've been thinking about that in each of these talks. And there are a few things, but one of the, the first thing I, I just would like to convey is the power of words, the power of language. Our world is created so much by our language, our words, our conceptualization, our associations to words, our feeling about what we hear or what we say. And words have this tremendous power to do good or, or to do harm. You know, a kind word at the, at the right time is, is precious, is so valuable. Or just somebody listening to us when we speak, when we're suffering, can change everything. You know, there's one whole school of psychological thought, under the theory from Carl Rogers, that was really based on what an amazing listener he was. That I've seen when I was studying to be a therapist many, many years ago, there would be films of him listening to people. And you could see, he, he, he didn't even do much, but he was so there when he listened to people, they would just start telling him everything. And not just telling him, you could see their, their burden was eased by his presence, by his kindness, which was just there in how he listened to people. or the uh, power of a harsh word, or a mean word, or a word that's set, said to be cutting or to be hurtful. I would, I would guess there's not anybody here who hasn't felt that sting or that pain at some time. And you can just reflect on, on when somebody said something to you, when they've gone after you with words or attacked with words. Whether it's because it's personal or racial or cultural or religious or familial or in some way, boom. And it's powerful. And those are just words. And it may be that, you know, sticks and stones will break our bones, but actually words hurt. They do hurt. 
And so just, and then, and then like in, a, in the public domain, uh, uh, if we just think about our leaders, if we have a leader that we feel like we can actually trust what they're saying, that's like a whole different world to have a leader where we feel like we don't trust what they're saying. I mean, it's a whole different world, a whole different reality. And if all the leaders of all the countries practiced right speech, we'd have an amazingly different world. That would be, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime, but it'd be nice. So the power of words. And then, you know, another level to think about it is technology. Now the words go out, boom. How many people here have hit the send button and regretted it? <laughs> I mean, that's dukkha. For, for those of you who are new to the Dharma, dukkha means suffering. Right? It's a very broad term, meaning all kinds of suffering. When you've hit that send button and you realize, not, maybe, maybe it isn't you didn't want to send it, but you're sending it to somebody you didn't want to send it. You wanted to send it to this person, but not that person, but you forgot to delete them. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, you're in trouble now. It's like, I mean, I know some stories, some, some Dharma stories, Dharma teacher stories. Not me, I'm happy to say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sending out an email about somebody, wrong speech, especially when you send it to the person you're talking about. <laughs> that's, a, that's trouble. Oh, I could tell you some stories. <laughs> but it would be wrong speech. To <laughs> so, you know, and then there's one other thing I'll just say right now about speech and then I'll go more into the classical understanding of right speech um, uh, many of you have been on silent retreats and you know right speech on the silent retreat is basically not to talk and so you'll spend the day or three days or five days or a week or a month and you're only talking when you're doing your interview with the teacher every few days. And otherwise, you're silent. And there are a few, few things there that are really amazing. Because being silent isn't silent, right? There's always this, or generally, there's this speech happening. There's this commentary, and there's this narrating, and there's this judging, and there's this evaluating habits like... I thought it was going to be silent, man. It's just going and going, this inner speech. And then people sometimes will actually get quiet, really start, it starts to quiet down. And sometimes it's, I mean, it can be very, very pleasurable, but it also can be very disturbing at times. It's like, oh, I really wanted that to stop? And it's like, you know, one of the responses, oh my God, there's nothing here. And you know, it's a, it's a good Buddhist nothing, but it may not feel like that at first. It may feel very disturbing when actually things get quiet. We're so used to talking to ourselves 
We're so used to what Carlos Castaneda would call the internal dialogue. And a lot of his practice and teaching was how to stop the internal dialogue. Because it just goes. Even, even when we're not speaking interactively with others, we're speaking intrapersonally, internally, to ourselves. And we actually, and, and the scary part is we believe that voice. <laughs> right? That's really, be careful of that. But, but what happens often is people feel really, like a lot happens on retreat. There's a lot of awakening happens. But one of the stunning things that happens is often then when people leave a retreat, and start to speak, it can often feel like the clumsiest part of one's practice. In other words, like the teachings of emptiness or selflessness. On retreat, it's like, oh yeah, I see there's nobody here. It's all happening on its own. I'm enlightened now. I'm free. I feel free. My heart's open. I clarity of mind. And then we get home and get into a fight with our partner in the first 20 minutes of being home. There's a story about Suzuki Roshi. And Suzuki Roshi, if you don't know, started the Zen Center in, in uh, San Francisco and Green Gulch Farm, Tassajara, and was a wonderful, wonderful, amazing Zen teacher. He wrote Zen Mind, Beginner, Beginner's Mind, one of my favorite books. And, and he had a lot of people who were really very dedicated, very devoted practitioners. And, one student once asked him, he said, so what do you think of all us, you know, Zen students, all us American Zen students? And he said, he looked at him, he said, I think you're all enlightened until you open your mouth. <laughs> you know, because those Zen students especially, they're all wearing black, they all look alike, they all sit facing the wall. They just look like Buddhas, and they sit very still, and, you know, because... In those days, they used to come around and smack you if you if you moved or if you fell asleep. They'd come around, they go and whack you with the the stick on the back, and it didn't really hurt that much, but it woke you up. And you know, in Zen, I mean, this is a little aside, but in Zen, when I used to practice at Zen Center, you know, you, you're staring at the wall, and they walk around behind you, but you keep your eyes are half open, and they're walking around with the stick. Big, and it's a big stick. And so you can see the shadow on the wall. And of course, you sit up, you know, because you don't want to really get smacked. And that used to keep me wide awake just seeing the shadow. I should come around and just whack a couple of you every now and again. <laughs> we don't do that in Vipassana. <laughs> so, anyhow, so. Right speech, right speech, language, words. Really one of the hallmarks of human beings is our incredibly high developed level of communication, of conceptualization and verbalization. It's really, really something. It's one of the hallmarks of human uh, maturity and development. So... Now here's an important piece. Coming, remember we did right view and right intention and right speech. Well, let me start here. So the Buddha, before he was enlightened, he was known as the Bodhisattva. 
and there are hundreds of stories of his past lives um, in the Jataka tales. And these are tales of the Buddha, life after life that he has, as some as a human being, often as animals, elephants or crow or lion or this. And they're really, they're beautiful tales and kind of morality tales, a little bit like children's tales. And children really love those stories. But they're stories that teach. They're teaching stories also. And in those stories, the Buddha, as he goes through his lives, perfecting his consciousness until he's born in the Siddhartha Gautama and then awakens as the Buddha, he breaks all the precepts the precept against killing or against stealing or misusing sexuality or alcohol or drugs. He breaks all the precepts. But what's interesting is the one precept he never breaks is the precept around right speech. And it, 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 it mythologically, archetypically, it points us to the importance of speech, how important that is for us and for beings to use this power well, use it skillfully for our benefit and really for the benefit of all. <clears throat> and so when we look at the path and we, we begin to see right view and beginning to see clearly, see the way things are, that that begins to uh, uh, orient our values and our intention our intention orients our speech. Well, one of the key pieces about what makes speech right speech or not breaking a precept is our intention when we speak. Like, what is our intention when we're saying something to somebody else? And as a practice, that's a fascinating practice. Now, it takes a certain level of mindfulness, and we want to develop the mindfulness so we can pay attention, not, ex not, not in a mechanical way, but in a really organic way, so we're aware of, oh, what's our intention when we say something, when we tell somebody something, or we want to you know, communicate something to somebody, or we want to you know, write somebody. What is, what is it? Why, why are we saying it? What's our intention? Is our intention a skillful intention or an unskillful intention? And skillful means are we doing it for the benefit of the other and ourselves? Or is there some other motivation? And you know in the Tibetan tradition they say everything rests on the tip of motivation what our intention is. And you can watch this. I, I can assure you, you watch it. If your motivation is to stick it to somebody, you'll see there'll be a reaction. There'll be, you'll, it'll, it'll come back in some way, shape, or form. And if your motivation is to help somebody, that's a great benefit. Um, and sometimes the motivations are mixed. And so we want to even be able to pay attention to that level of motivation. And so mindfulness, which we'll come to later in the Eightfold Path, is very important in terms of right speech, that we can begin to be mindful of our motivation. What, what is our, why, why do we want to speak? Is it to help or to hurt? 
Is it because we're feeling reactive or responsive? Are we in reaction? Are we in contraction? That's a good telltale sign. If we can be mindful to when we're contracted, that'll often tell us a lot about what our response is. What, what are we, why are we speaking? And it doesn't mean the reaction is wrong. It means, means we want to know, oh yeah, maybe this feels wrong and I need to say no. And the no is really the skillful thing here. Or sometimes we're in reaction because we're jealous. And maybe it's not so skillful to say, oh, you know, you don't really look that good today. Maybe you should try a different, you know, hat, whatever it is. But to start to pay attention, and it's subtle, and it's why mindfulness of the body is very helpful because we can really start to pay attention. It becomes a barometer of of our uh, openness or our contractedness of what's happening for us. And so, um, uh, uh, so there are many, many times when we might not be aware of what our intention is. Sometimes it's really good to pause when my daughter was growing up and she was about oh, 12 or 13, no, yeah, she was about 12 or 13, I actually, somebody came to group here, a woman <clears throat> who I'd known when my daughter was much younger, when they were in preschool together. And I hadn't seen her in a number of years and we chatted about our daughters and she said, oh yeah, I'm so glad I have this practice. She said, my daughter came home, she was 13, on the bus the other day and she came home and she said, oh, I met a really interesting boy and, on the bus and we had a nice conversation. I'm going to meet him at the coffee shop and we're going to, have, you know, have a chat. And the mom's saying, okay, well, you know, what? and she's listening about the boy and the boy sounds kind of sophisticated. Finally, she said to the daughter, the 13-year-old, she said, how old is this boy? And the daughter said, oh, 28. <laughs> And the mother said, she said she paused at that point. She said, you know, I'm having a little reaction. I'm going to go sit for a minute, but don't go out yet. <laughs> and she said she went and sat for a few minutes, and she realized she was scared for her daughter. And she went back, and she said, you know, I'm actually, this doesn't sound so good for me. This doesn't seem appropriate. I actually feel a little scared, or whatever she said. And she said she explained it to her daughter and, you know, said, you know, I'd rather you didn't go meet with him, uh, you know, given the age difference or whatever. And the daughter looked at mom and said, okay. <laughs> but the first reaction, I know what my reaction would have been. <laughs> no way you're going. You know, it would have been a reaction. Rather than first sitting and feeling the reaction, feeling the intention, oh, what do I want to say here, and why? Oh, I'm, this doesn't sound like a safe situation, right? You know, 28-year-old, 13, oh, that's a little off, you know, 99 and 9 tenths percent of the time, right? And I'm, I'm going to say something to my daughter. But, but it went from being a reaction to actually just responding to the situation appropriately. And, you know, she was also willing to say no to the daughter if the daughter wanted to go, but she had a more adult conversation with the daughter, and the daughter was fine. So, 
starting to pay attention to our intention is also part of right speech. <clears throat> William Blake said, he said, a truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. <clears throat> so traditionally, there are four areas that the Buddha pointed at in terms of speech. And it's, it, it's put in the negative, as is often taught in Buddhism. Here, here's the kinds of speech to abstain from or not engage in. Abstaining from false speech, abstaining from slanderous speech, abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from idle chatter. So those are the four negatives or four abstentions. And the first one is, you know, maybe underlies all the others, abstaining from false speech. It really has to do with being honest or being truthful. Just, just if we just practice really being a little bit uh, precise with our words and our language and what we want to say and our honesty, that's a, that's a radical practice. That's a very powerful practice. Because false speech undermines relationship. That if we lie or we don't tell the truth or we fudge, whether by uh, uh, omission or commission, in some ways we don't say what's true, it actually begins to uh, 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 undercut our relationships, whether it's the most personal relationships or it's friendship relationships or if it's familial relationships or, or uh, uh, um, um, in the workplace, our relationships with our peers or our, our employees or our bosses or, and again, in politics, it's the same thing. It, it, it undermines trust. It undermines safety. You know, it was said at one time that a person's word was gold. You know, and this is, this is before mass media, for sure but that at, a, at a certain times in history, they would really talk about, you, you know, that if this person gave their word, you could trust it. And that, and that was so valued, it was considered so precious, and really it's still precious today, that it's like gold. And, and in terms of our relationship, we can't have real relationship if we're not willing to be honest, if we're not willing to tell the truth. And it's amazing how often we're either shy about telling the truth or we think telling the truth is a bad thing or we, we're afraid we'll lose what we have or want or something. There's, there can be a lot of fudging, a lot of just not landing in what's true and saying what's true for us in an honest way, in a not attacking way but in a real way, being authentic with who we are. And the Dharma won't work. Actually, like in mindfulness, if you're trying to be mindful of what's happening and you're telling yourself something else is happening, it, it can't work. You can't be mindful of what's not happening. 
Like if I'm sitting just internally, like, you know, if I'm sitting and I'm thinking, oh, I just want to be happy, so I'm just going to, you know, tell myself I'm happy, but really I'm, I feel like shit. Oh, no, I'm happy. I'm happy. Shit. <laughs> no, I'm really happy. I'm really happy. It doesn't work. That's not, that's not, it's not authentic. Sometimes people think, oh, to be uh, 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 a Buddhist, it means that we can't have the whole display of human experience, when actually it's just the opposite, that it, it is through the whole display of human experience that we discover the truth of the Dharma, that we let ourselves... We learn, we develop the skills to be with our experience, our feelings, what's true for us, without having to act on it necessarily, without having to uh, believe it's all of who and what we are necessarily, but to let it live in its temporal existence, rising for a while, sustaining for a moment or a few minutes or an hour or a day, and then it self-liberates because everything is impermanent. That it's the grasping onto it or the pushing it away that begins to reify it and concretize it. That's the attachment. Even remember, remember, attachment is both grasping at something or pushing away something. And so to begin to let life unfold, to let the Dharma unfold, means to let ourselves be in a certain way and to develop the skills, the mindfulness, the presence, the concentration and samadhi to allow that all to happen on its own. Because like it or not, it's happening on its own already. We have almost no control whether you've noticed or not. <laughs> it's, it's a wild ride. And so speech becomes an important reflection, manifestation, articulation of the truth. That speaking what's truth true becomes essential to living a life of Dharma. <clears throat> this is from Reb Anderson. He said he's talking about Sangha, like us being together. One of the values of Sangha, and this is best case scenario, means we can be real with one another. That we can speak honestly with one another. That we can have our differences in a way that is held within the mutual uh, valuing of the Dharma and of the Buddha Dharma, and so that we can each be actually who we are. He said, when members of the Sangha practice right speech, it generates trust and harmony within the community and becomes a strong support for others' liberation. On the other hand, when members of the Sangha speak falsely or act in a way that encourages others to use false speech, it brings about a deterioration of trust among people in the community and undermines liberation. And we've seen this in communities, especially, I mean, one of the classic ways we've seen it is when the teacher's inauthentic or when the teacher speaks one thing and then acts in another way. And it's been devastating to communities when that happens 
you know, and usually it's happened a lot around sexuality and acting out and saying one thing and not living that, you know, the precepts really. Um, or misuse of power through language and etc. The second abstention, which is about slander, what was the word? Abstaining from slanderous speech. One of the great questions here is, well, why would we slander somebody? What does that do? Why would that happen? Why do we have to demean somebody else? If, if, we're, if we're acting from that, there's something happening in us we're actually not paying attention to. Some jealousy, some envy, some sense of comparison. You know, if somebody's doing something inappropriate, we can say it. That's not slander. Slander is really um, demeaning the value of the human being rather than saying their actions are wrong or what they said may be wrong. And, I'm, and what I'm trying to do is weave in here the difference between right speech and trying to be kind of Pollyanna about reality. Reality calls for our responsiveness and sometimes it calls for our responsiveness to be very um, strong and clear and to stand up for things, injustice, or things that are inappropriate. And the speech can be very strong at that point without demeaning the humanness of the person we're speaking to or about. Uh, harsh speech, abstaining from harsh speech. Again, harsh speech usually comes from some kind of reaction. And I'm making a differentiation between what I'm calling strong speech and harsh speech. Harsh speech usually has a kind of aversion in it or a reaction to it or um, uh, uh, um, can be insulting or uh, abusive or could be sarcastic is often a word or mean in some way. Mean, And that's different than strong, direct speech speech that's protective. <clears throat> and then the fourth abstention is about gossip, right? Abstaining from gossip. And you know, gossip's, gossip's pretty big, wouldn't you say? Pretty big these days. Anybody, you ever go to those websites that are just about celebrities? Oh, come on, at least one person here has, right? <laughs> yeah, right, come on, let's give it up. I've gone. It's like, wow, what are they saying? What are they doing? It's like, it's a kind of, uh, um, it has many different levels, that kind of gossip. It's a little like, uh, um, I don't know, eating sweets or something. Not that it's sweet, but it's, it's, it's that level of sustenance. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of intoxicating a little bit. Or, you know, or we gossip about people, you know, because we're jealous of them or because we don't know them or, or sometimes that's the only way we know how to make conversation. One of my teachers said he once, Joseph Goldstein, he said at one point he decided just to practice not speaking about somebody who wasn't present. 
not speaking about somebody who wasn't present. I can't actually remember the percentage. I think it was something like 80 to 90% of his speech stopped, <laughs> right? If we just don't speak about somebody who's not present, you could take it on for a practice, see what it's like. These abstentions have a positive side. I give you the negative first. The positive side is uh, to abstain from false speech is really about speaking the truth. Uh, to abstain from slander is speech that promotes friendship and harmony. To abstain from harsh speech is speech that's kind or gentle or warm or touching, contactful. Or to abstain from gossip means to speak what's meaningful or what's valuable or what's from the heart speaking from the heart, not just from the mouth. And you know, this is also a little aside, but it's an interesting aside. I was doing a talk about food, and I asked different people, different elders of mine, teachers, about food, and I asked people who were both meat-eaters and non-meat-eaters, and you know, there can be a great division between meat-eaters and non-meat-eaters. And I'm, I'm not going to go into that. But what was interesting was both the meat eaters and the non-eaters, non-meat eaters said, it's more important what comes out of your mouth than what goes into your mouth. Like they both said that. And I thought it was really interesting to get that. And so the piece I want to just continue to emphasize, you remember what I said, oh, what I would like you to get, the power of speech, how powerful words are and our, and our communication is. And then it's the power of truth. I, I just, I think that is so important. The word is veracity. It originally meant speaking truly. That this is an, a great power truth. And you know, you can hear it in great people when they speak the truth. And it's, it, it's like, it's like this. You know, it's like a bell rings when you hear the truth. And even, I mean, to consider the Buddha speaking the Buddha Dharma, that truth has been reverberating now for 2,600 years, has been freeing people for 2,600 years. You know, or any, any inspiring figure, you know, whether it's Socrates or Gandhi or Martin Luther King or you know, who, somebody who spoke the truth uh, and, and, and you could hear it and it was not just, it was their words or, and their, their whole being. I mean, really one of the people who comes to mind to me was I was a young man and, uh, when, Martin Luther, when Malcolm X was alive and he had a way of speaking, he had a power to speak and he was speaking the truth often. Not too many people were speaking and he was willing to speak it even, and this is important, even as his understanding of the truth deepened and changed. Now that's a really important piece that I hadn't actually thought of, but I want to say something about that. Because when we speak the truth, well maybe we'll find out, oh, it's not the whole truth later. And that, that's, that's what happens. The truth is not a fixed thing. It's alive. And so we speak the truth, and then when we see, oh, something else is also true or more true, part of speaking the truth 
is to then say, oh, I was wrong here. No, now it's, I see this is how it is. And it doesn't mean you were false before. You, we speak our truth as we know it. We be as authentic as possible. And then if that changes, we're willing to change with it. We're not, we're not attached. We're not trying to fix, oh, no, this is the truth, and we're always going to hold on to it. We're opening to the, the truth is a living truth. It's an alive truth. The Dharma is alive as a truth. And, and Malcolm X was really radical in that way. You, if you could read his autobiography, you see his development and how he continued to seek the truth and speak the truth as he understood it. And so the word veracity, it's a beautiful word. It means truthfulness, truth, accuracy. These are the synonyms, faithfulness, fidelity, reputability, honesty, sincerity. It has all these beautiful qualities speaking the truth. Trustworthiness, reliability, dependability, scrupulousness, ethics, morality, virtue, decency, straightforwardness, goodness. And it really begins to align us with the Dharma. Speaking the truth brings our practice of being in the world in alignment with the Dharma. That we're valuing something greater than ourselves. We value the truth. We value the Dharma. <clears throat> and we value it both as a teaching and as a realization and as, a, as, an actual, as a manifestation of the Dharma in the world, as actualizing the Dharma in the world. And this is, this is one of my favorite quotes that I love to read from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And I'm happy to read it to you now. And I'll read it a couple times. It's, it's dense, so, so listen. Listen up here. <laughs> truthful speech, truthful speech provides in the sphere of interpersonal communication a parallel to wisdom in the sphere of private understanding. The two are respectively the outward and the inward commitment to what is real. Wisdom consists in the realization of truth. And truth is not just a verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things as they are. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. Thus, more than an ethical principle, which it also is, but thus more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by confusion. Should I read it once more? Okay. It's, it's a beautiful teaching. And you know where you can read this also. I'll just give you a heads up. And, and, it, and it's helpful to look at as we go through the Eightfold Path. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's got a, 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 a book, The Noble Eightfold Path. And it's online. You can download it. It's free. And he's, he does some beautiful writing on the Eightfold Path. 
He says, truthful speech provides in the sphere of interpersonal communication a parallel to wisdom in the sphere of private understanding. And, the, and you, could, you could also say in the sphere of individual meditation, right? Private understanding. The two are respectfully the outward and the inward commitment to what is real. And if you want to practice the Dharma, that's a fundamental piece, is the commitment to the truth, the commitment to what's real, the commitment to authenticity. Wisdom consists in the realization of truth. And truth is not just the verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things as they are. Our whole being. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just in meditation. Our whole being has to be brought into accord with the truth of the way things are. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, the real nature of reality, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. It's an awkward line there. Really what it means is he's, he's, he's breaking down the duality there too. It's not just, oh, I or me or mine. It's wisdom rises up to fathom its or their true nature, their real nature. Thus, more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather, the, rather than the fantasies woven by confusion or delusion. So just that. Again, just truthfulness, just honesty, as best we can. You know, we'll all make mistakes. We'll all see that actually it's not such an easy thing to do to be honest, to be truthful all the time. It's, it's a practice. It's a practice. <clears throat> Couple more just little pieces. Um, about being untruthful, and this is one of the hardest things about it, is that lying proliferates. You ever notice this? If you tell a lie, you have to remember it. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember it. Because you tell a lie to somebody and then somebody else says something and you got to remember, oh, who'd you tell that to? And then you maybe you have to say another one over here to cover the first one. It proliferates. You have to cover your butt, basically. You don't have to cover anything if you're honest, if you're truthful. Now, I'm also important to say about truthfulness, and I'm, I didn't go into this, there are a lot of teachings about uh, um, truthful doesn't mean you always say everything. In other words, for the Buddha, it said, I'll read it here somewhere. The Buddha knows the time to use speech. Why is that? Because the Buddha has compassion for all beings. In other words, there's a time for speech also. And this is where, again, where mindfulness and presence comes into play. 
if we're not awake, if we're not present, if we're not sensitive, well, we might say something is true, but it's actually not the right time to say it. It's not a, and by right, I mean helpful time, beneficial time, or a time when somebody can hear it. Somebody can't hear it sometimes. It's, it's actually not so helpful. And sometimes we have to hold our speech because it's more beneficial. And, there's, and again, if you go online and start Googling right speech, there's a lot of information you'll get that can help deepen the practice of right speech. Mindful speech is a little bit uh, uh, a variant of right speech. If you look in the teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, speech is in the section on mindfulness of the body. And it's one reason why I like to really encourage people to practice a tremendous amount of mindfulness of the body so that we can stay embodied while we're speaking and while we're listening. Because generally, we disconnect. And the disconnection will not support right speech. And so you can think in terms of mindful speech, like there's, there's certain kinds of speech that are helpful, and being truthful is helpful, and abstaining from slandering is helpful. But there's also mindful speech, being present, being landed, being centered, being grounded, so that the words come from here rather than just from up here. That the words come from your belly and your heart, from being landed in the moment rather than just in a total virtual world of con concept. And then there's, then there's the speech of freedom, the speech of true nature, of when we're free, we're not caught in our small sense of self, or our personality, or our usual self-identifications, and then maybe we don't. Maybe mindfulness isn't even necessary. That kind of self-reflective mindfulness. There's a beautiful poem from the Tao. It says, "This world is nothing but the glory of the Tao, expressed through different names and forms. One who sees the things of this world as being real and self-existent has lost sight of the truth." To him or her, every word becomes a trap, everything becomes a prison. One who knows the truth that underlies all things lives in this world without danger. To her, to him, every word reflects the universe, every moment brings enlightenment. And something's being pointed to here, and it's the deeper depth of the Dharma understanding, it's the depth of selflessness or of emptiness or of transparency, of openness, of the magical nature of reality appearing and disappearing over and over again, moment by moment. This world is nothing but the glory of the Tao, the Tao Te Ching, the Tao, the Dharma, you could say, expressed through different names and different forms. And here we are. This is the different names. These are the different forms. One who sees the things of this world as being real and self-existent, meaning permanent, has lost sight of the truth. To that person, every word becomes a trap, everything becomes a prison. One who knows the truth that underlies all things, all things are impermanent, in the Buddha Dharma's understanding. One who, who knows the truth that underlies all things lives in this world without danger, 
To them, every word reflects the universe. Every moment brings enlightenment. The last little thing I want to say, I know this is long talk. Thank you for your patience. Here's what I would like to encourage everybody here to do. Let's take one week and practice right speech. And next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about our practice. Because you may notice in the Dharma, people start talking about practice and they're always referring to the meditation practice. And that's an that's a incredibly important part of our practice. But it's not the practice. Our life is our practice. And then within that, there's a subset, there's different variants, different areas we practice in. And really, the Eightfold Path is a series of practices, of processes, of areas to pay attention to and to live and to see how that sets the stage for enlightenment. Meditation is one part of the Eightfold Path. Speech is one practice of the Eightfold Path. So we're going to take this week, everybody, and that's our main practice. Doesn't mean to stop your sitting practice, but start to highlight your speech and your listening and your communication. See what happens. Take a few minutes and read a little more about right speech on the internet. Read Bhikkhu Bodhi or go read a contemporary teacher, a lay teacher. And then I'll end with this quote from Jack Cornfield. He's talking about the precepts, which right speech is part of the precepts. Remember, we're in the basket of sila, of, of virtue. Virtue is ethical conduct in Buddhism. So he says, uh, at first the precepts are a practice. Then they become a necessity. Finally, they become a joy. When our heart is awakened, they spontaneously illuminate our way in the world. This is called shining virtue, shining sila. The light around someone who speaks the truth, who consistently acts with compassion for all, even with great difficulty, is visible to all around them, is a light for the whole world. So let's sit together for a minute, please. <clears throat> 